Hey guys, ladies, gentlemen, girls and boys, welcome to another Guitar Wank. I am your host, Troy McCubbin. You have no say in it. Uh, thank you for joining us. Hope you are well <laughs> in these fucking crazy times. Hope you're well. Hope you're well and you're safe and you're hanging in. If you're going through some heavy shit, hang in there. Stand, stand, stand tough. Stay the course. Don't let the bastards get you down. As Billy Connolly would say, just uh, got to hang in. Uh, whatever you are doing in the world, whatever you are doing in the world, okay? <laughs> it's a late night. <laughs> oh, God. But uh, we, uh, we've got a, another episode of Guitar Wank here for you. This is 2010. 210 episodes. We are into it in 220. Who thought 2020 was going to be such a shit show? And apparently uh, it's not getting any better. Uh, but we're going to keep soldiering on. We've got well, last one with Brett. We're going to finish up with Brett. It was a good one. Brett, thank you, mate. I'm uh, Brett. Gar said, check out his stuff, man. Monster guitar player. Um, yeah, just go check out his stuff. And he does online lessons. You can get a lesson with this guy. How cool is that? You can just hassle him, get a lesson. Uh, so we, we may play... I think he only gave us a few tunes, so I might repeat. Last week, those tunes were all Brett's, and we might just repeat some of them because they're really good. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, thanks, Brett. Really appreciate it, mate. Uh, we've got a lead-in. Before we start with Brett, we've got 15 minutes, I think it is, with Barney Kessel. Kind of interesting, right? And uh, Barney, Bruce, Bruce sent me a, uh, a thing that he found, I guess he got from his Barney's Wis Widow. Uh, it's an interview from, I believe, maybe the 70s of Barney Kessel. So uh, we thought we'd throw it up. It's pretty interesting stuff with Mr. Mr. Kessel, Barney. Uh, yeah, so check that out. We're going to put that up at the front of the show here. Have a listen. Remember, Grumps live at 5 on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Check out Bruce, questions, all that kind of stuff. He does it all. He'll even drink himself to oblivion in front of you. He'll do it. Don't tempt him. He's a great man. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, we've got more exciting shows coming. I know Scott's got some cool guests coming in, which is fantastic. I believe Mr. Andy Timmons. That'll be fun. Love Andy. Love what he does. He's a great man. And uh, I've got to keep bugging him about Steve Vai. I've got to get, get on that. Steve Vai would be great. Um, yeah, Scott knows all these people and he's, he's very blasé about it. It's like, Scott, come on, dude. Fucking hook us up. Steve Vai, you played with him. Like, you've done shit. You know the guy. Call him. <laughs> so I'm going to have to bug him. It's like, um, and that's it. Guitarwank at gmail.com. Uh, Guitarwank.com. We've got the Patreon account. Uh, Bruce and Scott said they're going to do some uh, little snippet lesson videos. I forget what Bruce is going to call it. Um, I'm going to give another shout out to Tom Bookervac in Nashville. Doing great work with his uh, YouTube channel, Homeschooling. I really dig it. And uh, yeah, definitely worth a look. Thanks, Tom. And uh, yeah, let's get Tom a guitar wank mug or a t shirt. Get him a t shirt. <laughs> he may not wear it. They're, 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 they're a little scratchy. No, they're not scratchy. No, they're okay. They're good. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get him something. 
Uh, all right, we'll sit back, enjoy this. Please be safe, be well, hang in there, stay healthy. Exercise, man, you got to fucking exercise. Get off your butt. Don't sit down and play guitar for like hours and hours. Get up, move around, do some push-ups. Just do something. you got to get that blood flowing. It is important. It's really important, especially right now. So um, do that. And uh, we will catch you guys all next week. Sit back and enjoy this Barney Kessels thing. Kind of a trip, right? Barney's on the show. Kind of cool. All right. Uh, You guys all be safe. We'll catch you all next week. Big shout out to all our friends in Japan and Brazil. I know they're doing it hard too. Fuck, man. We're doing it hard everywhere. It's crazy. It's so crazy. It's not just like one country thing. It's everywhere. (laughs) This shit is crazy. Ay, ay, ay. So, all right. Well, that was Lyle Workman. He says, <laughs> he's a good man. Lyle Workman. I like his I like his work. He's a great player. Hear that guy play guitar. Fuck. He's a monster. All these monster guitar players. They all go fuck themselves. <laughs> there you go. Now you can just get sick. You practice and practice, and you never sound as good as you want to. Ay, ay, ay. All right, enough of my shit. Go practice, be safe, listen to this show, and um, we'll catch you guys all uh, on next episode. This is, what did I say it was? 210 episode, that's right. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks, mate. Bye. consultants and and uh, psychiatric inputs and things like that and applying them to the guitar than I could for music. Well, but as you said, though, you had to get to the point where you could utilize that sort of non-musical information. Um, Barney, you've had a life in music that must be among the most varied, I suppose, that have ever happened. Uh, From the Les Brown Band, could you uh, take us on a, a five-minute whirlwind tour of some of the people that you went on to work with from there? Okay, let me see if I can come up with some names, all kind of chronologically and in some sort of grouping. Let me mention some of the dance bands I've played with. Uh, Les Brown, Hal McIntyre, Charlie Barnett, Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman, uh, Frank Duvall, Nelson Riddle, uh, these are some that come to mind right away. Stan Kenton, uh, only for records. Now let's leave him out. Now that was a very brief. That was a very brief thing, but I did work with. Uh, I've worked with. Uh, let's talk about radio personalities. Amos and Andy on the radio. Are you uh, with the studio? Yes, band? Y- yes. That that with the, with the original White Amos and Andy. That that. Uh, Freeman guys in Charles. Yes, Crow. that's right. Um, I worked with the Charlotte Greenwood at the time uh, with Jack Carson and Eve Arden. Uh, I worked the very first radio show 
that Danny Thomas ever did as a performer, and he was the principal guest for Fanny Bryce, uh, and on and on. I worked with Red Skelton when uh, Ozzie Nelson was the band leader. Billy May played trumpet and wrote arrangements. Uh, where Harriet Hilliard, Ozzie's wife, was the mother of the mean little kid uh, that Red Skelton played. Um, I was on the Kraft Music Hall with Bing Crosby as a guest with uh, as part of Artie Shaw's group. Uh, I think I mentioned Artie Shaw's band and I was a member of that. Uh, various uh, singers that I've worked with, uh, either briefly on records or over a long period of time in uh, actual engagements in clubs, one way or another I have been associated with them and more than once would be people like uh, Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire, uh, Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland, uh, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, Vic Damone, Mahalia Jackson, Dinah Shore, uh, variety artists like uh, in specialized fields like uh, Tex Ritter, Gene Autry, um, I've worked uh, on many, many television shows, uh, Perry Mason, uh, Jack Smith radio show, Oxidol. Uh, I've played practically all over the world. I've played uh, almost in every kind of context except perhaps flamenco. I've played classical music, although not only classical guitar. Um, I've worked with classical artists, like I have personally worked on productions with and jointly together with people like uh, John Williams classical guitarist, and Julian Bream. Uh, well, it's hard to get more varied yeah, than that. Yeah. If you can think back over all of those, the myriad of experiences, musical experiences, um, can you think of a, a particular band or a particular period of time that was the most fun, uh, the, the best musical time you had? No, I enjoyed most of it. I, I really did enjoy most of it. Uh, there may be some that come up as being better than others, but uh, one good time was uh, as a member of Artie Shaw's band. I was with him for a year. It was the only time I was ever on a year's contract where I had a yearly salary guaranteed, and I knew where I stood, and I really liked Artie, and I thought he was very definite in what he wanted, and that he was very conscientious about wanting a good band, and, it, and I had a lot of chances to play. The band was in uh, was prominent, nationally prominent. Uh, Artie had a big following. It was a good thing for my career, and it was a good chance, to, great chance to play, good exposure, and it was a lot of fun. That would be uh, one time. I also enjoyed uh, playing ten months with Oscar Peterson, playing with Ray Brown and Oscar. Uh, before I turned it over to uh, Herb Ellis, who's, who was there for six years. Were you, you were um, Oscar's first guitar player, no, I think, right? No, I was really his third. 
Uh, the first one that he had was Irving Ashby. Oh, and then certainly. briefly, very briefly, Kenny Burrell was there, uh, just to kind of fill in for a while. And then I was with Oscar for 10 months. And then, then the guy that really was with him for a long, long period was uh, Herb. Many people are, uh, that follow this whole thing are very surprised to learn that I was only with Oscar for 10 months, but that, but that was because, it seemed longer, but that's because during that 10 months, we really had a tremendous recording campaign. We just did an awful lot of records so that when you see all of those records that the normal thought would be, gee, this guy must have been with him for years. How many records do you think you've made in your life at this point? I would have no way of knowing. I know that I've made about 30 albums of my own that I don't even have. I don't have them. I, most of the records that I've made I don't have because I started collecting my own records very late in life. Uh, and I only did that just in terms of a, as a hobby and just to, just to be able to have them. But I, well, here's the reason I don't know, is that because for about 17 years, I was doing two to three record dates five days a week, year in and year out. In Los Angeles? Yes, and many of those were jazz records. Many of those were playing behind vocalists or playing as a part of some group, like part of Shorty Rogers' band or, or the All-Stars or something in which I either had solos or I was backing up someone else. Sometimes they mentioned my name, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes even though I was there and they wanted me, I, I had nothing to play that would indicate I was on the record. Mm -hmm. uh, there are records that uh, are with Norman Grants, for instance, with Oscar and Ella, uh, in which I was in the same context recording that later Herb Ellis was, and neither of us had a particularly prominent part to play. So as I listen to that record now, and if there's no label listing, I don't know if it's me or him. Hmm. Because I, it, we, we didn't really have anything to do that, that uh, caused us to play solos, and so there would be no way to know. I would think that the record, that, or the series of records that brought you most prominence, it would seem to me, would be the, uh, the poll winners albums. Is that right? The poll winners, I would say, first of all, uh, the poll winners records, and then all the other records that I made for contemporary records. Uh, Did those follow the poll winners? No, no, the, the poll winners were just interjected uh, in between my regular uh, recording contract with uh, Contemporary. In other words, just every once in a while I would make a poll winners record. Uh, oh, that's right. Kessel played Stan yeah, was, yeah. was way before and, that. Uh, and then it was one to swing or not to swing. And, and they all did well. But the poll winners did better than the rest. And then one other record, which was, uh, which was a single and also an album, and that was, uh, there was an album called Julie Is Her Name with Julie London, and then Cry Me a River. Uh, that did well in terms of it being uh, a popular hit, and also many people learned of my music as a result of this record that had never known of jazz or had never known of me before. Were you credited on the album? Yes. Who was the bass player? Ray Leatherwood. Ray Leatherwood. Yeah. Uh, he is a gentleman that uh, lives in Los Angeles, and he's played uh, a lot with uh, Bob Crosby. He's worked a lot mm -hmm. with him. You worked at some point with uh, Billy Holiday, I believe, didn't you? Did you do some recording yes, with yes. him? Yes, yes. Uh, over a period of time, over a period of several years, I did about eight albums with her mm -hmm. uh, for Norman Grants. 
Did you travel with Jazz at the Phil? Yes, I traveled several times. Uh, one time I was a member of uh, Oscar Peterson's group. Another time I was a part of uh, Charlie Parker's group. And another time I was just one of the all-stars. Were those tours as exciting for you as a, a successful, mature guitar player at that point? Were they as exciting as one might think, looking back on them now with Flip Phillips and Lester Young and all of the great names and good, hard-swinging jazz? Was it as fun as it seems? Uh, parts, parts of them were fun, but, but uh, a lot of it was not fun for me. Uh, I, I was uh, going through personal thoughts, not really problems, but, but uh, I was at a stage, I would say, where uh, I wasn't integrated in my mind uh, in terms of purpose. I was at cross-purposes. Part of me wanted to stay in California and be a freelance musician and bask in the financial security and the sun and uh, have all of these creature comforts. Part of me wanted to be out on the road playing. And I, I was torn between these two. And this dissipates your energy. This is something that I bring out in my own seminars because that's where I learn about these things. It's that uh, all of my being was not geared to going in this one direction. Part of me wanted to go one way, part of me wanted to go just the opposite way. And I really wasn't too happy at that time And uh, about that. Also, while the music had great spirit and the guys were great guys, it, it was a very, very loose thing. And quite often I felt that, that uh, musically uh, there were many things that could have been uh, more um, structured. It was just sometimes a little too loose. And there was always the temptation by some of the players to give in to what is known as grandstanding, and that is playing to the taste of the least common denominator of the audience. If they wanted uh, sort of noises, or it's called selling out or grandstanding, or well, you play a riff over and over and over yeah. again, and pretty soon everybody's standing up screaming. Yeah, uh, kind of going below your own musical standards to get a certain element in the crowd uh, responding. Barney, looking back now over all this period of time, what, what would you change from the guitar standpoint? What would you do differently? Anything? You mean if I had to do it all, all mm -hmm. over again? Yeah. Well, uh, there's two ways. First of all, I might have caught myself in time and become a lawyer. Uh, I, like, I like the whole idea of being a lawyer. I like to speak. I like to talk. I like to analyze. Uh, the, the idea appeals to me. I might have made the guitar my hobby, and had I been able to look back, I would have done that. The other thing would be, I would have never gotten into freelance, or at best, I would have only become involved in it maybe three to five years to sort of get a kind of a ground experience, an overall polish. But I would have, I would have continued the way I was when I was about 18, which is just to play the guitar to express myself, to have great fun. What I'm doing right now, I feel that right now in my life, I'm just picking up the threads that I left off before I went into the freelance field. And you freelanced for how long? 25 years. And now today you're concertizing throughout the world? Yeah, mostly playing, uh, mostly playing uh, festivals, television, radio, 
and uh, concerts and some clubs. Has some the guitar been good to you? Very good. Yeah, it's been very good. Uh, my whole attitude has changed about the guitar. I'm not playing it for the same reason that I started out playing it. Uh, now that may sound counter to what I just said, but I'd like to explain that. When I first began to play the guitar, I would look at the guitar as being a source of happiness. I would feel blue. I would pick up the guitar and I no longer felt blue. The guitar was being used kind of like an aspirin. Uh, because of my involvement with it, my, my surroundings would seem to change. But now, I feel the most important thing is living your life, and the guitar is now a part of my life, whereas at one time the guitar was, for the most part, the greatest part of my life, or the only part of my life. Uh, music itself was. Now, music and the guitar are just a splinter. They're, they're a, a cog, they're a spoke in the wheel of life.
Yeah. So do you do you miss do you miss LA, mate? Do you, do you ever feel the niche to head back over, or are you just you happy to see it behind you? No, no, I'd love to come back over. I miss I miss you guys. I miss my friends. You know, I miss the people. I, yeah. I I don't miss sitting in traffic on the four hundred five or anything like that. You but today. But, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Now would be the time to. Now would be the time to do it. But yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to come back over. I was really bummed when I couldn't do the the trip over, when Chris was going to have me come over and do his video. But um, uh, I haven't been back there in ten years. I think wow. it's, it's a mess. Yeah, it's got to be ten years. I think the last time I was there was maybe two thousand and ten. I think I. I think I talked to you just before you left, uh, when you went back. Okay. Um, yeah. I, think, I, I sort of. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's, it's been ages. So no, I'd love to. I'd love to come back. So, and do, do so. you catch up with TJ much? Do you get? Do you guys get to keep in touch at all? Or no, no, we we, we sort of. <laughs> I'll send him like a message on. Uh, I'll send him a message on Facebook, and he'll reply with some sort of strange, abstract sort of thing that <laughs> only TJ can reply with, and uh, and uh, that's about as far as it goes. But yeah, maybe I should try and. I'll try and should try and Skype call him and have a good talk to him. We haven't spoken you in. You know, we, we should have TJ on the show because he's yeah. such a brilliant. You know, I mean, you should absolutely have. Him on the show. Yeah, one of those, another one of those fantastic guitar players who's also an amazing engineer. Yeah, you know? and, and an amazing singer. Like I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, TJ is like an incredible triple threat. You know, like I mean, he. Yeah. He could have just put the guitar down and sang in a band. I mean, that guy, you should hear him sing Soundgarden tunes and things like that. I mean, Jesus. you can, he's an amazing singer. Yeah, he's super and, talented. And yeah, like you said, like a, a, he could just completely and utterly be a recording engineer and have a great career as that as well. So, You know what I, I always thought was the funniest thing, man? You know, I had I had this song on, on my Dog Party album called Too Many Guitars. I remember that song, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I had like a bunch of my friends play a chorus each and i think it was my friend willie scoggins steve Travato played the next solo then keith wyatt played a solo keith wyatt, yeah, yeah yeah then i played a solo and then tj played a solo right <laughs> i remember and it yeah tj solo just kind of made us look like we were slinging hash right <laughs> <laughs> and i was sort of like you know, it's pretty sad when your engineer outplays you. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it's like it was, God it was, damn it! It was such a wild technique the way TJ would do it. I remember once we were we were we used to muck around with things and experiment with scales and things, and he was doing this thing where he was capable of playing like a major scale in one key with one hand. And another major scale in another key with another hand, and it became like a like a half step whole step kind of thing or something. Yeah. And we we didn't sort of persevere with it to figure out what it was and where it could be used. But I remember just thinking, my God, the possibilities of this technique, like the things he was capable of doing. I've with never it seen really... anybody else do anything close. Ah, me neither. You know, no, like no. like what he does is so is so amazing that no one's ever. Nobody's ever come close to doing what he does on the guitar uh, in that style. I mean, there's just, that's it. He's the guy. But what I loved about it was he, he really wanted to get into the nuance of it, like the phrasing and the, the, yes. the, the, the dynamics of it. Like, a, I suppose the obvious thing to go for is the technique and the chops and the flash. And, but he already had that anyway. He'd done that, you know. And, and yeah, I, most of the work I'd see TJ putting into it was about how to be more expressive with it. And, 
legitimate with it, like where people could uh, – a lot of times people would try and bring it down and say, well, you can't do this with it. And I'm like, well, yeah, sure, you can't do a pick slide because you haven't got a pick. But, you know, like look at what you can do with it. Look at the possibilities it does open up. Mm-hmm. The only guy I can think of besides TJ – is like Stanley Jordan in a completely different Stop. way. Yeah. Also did an amazing thing with that technique in a completely yeah. different type of music, but also ridiculously innovative. And exactly. I sort of look at TJ and Stanley Jordan in the same kind of light, even though they play completely different styles. Those are the two most innovative guys I can think of that played the guitar. Basically, they're piano players that play guitar. That's right, yeah, because uh, yeah, TJ's right hand on the fretboard was easily as legitimate as my left hand was. And was yeah, I mean, he's like he's actually playing playing piano on guitar. He's actually using all five fingers of his right hand and all five fingers of his left hand and doing yeah. all that crazy shit. Oh just yeah, like, we, was, we just, sometimes yeah, we would be jamming and he just start. I just be rolling around laughing at some of the stuff that was coming out. Of I, know. Show, over the I know because you just go, don't think, don't think that a guitar can do that. No, no. <laughs> and of course, like, when you, you know, when you combine it with TJ's mad scientist brain, it's like it's a, right. you know, it's a match made in heaven. So. Speaking <laughs> of mad scientists, I'm sure you remember this solo. TJ came just into my room one day at school and he played me this solo, and I said. TJ, I don't know what pedal you're using, but I want. Ah, it. And it's I, the, it's the one said, where he, re- he recorded the vinyl album, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. He recorded. <laughs> he recorded to a. He recorded. Uh, sorry. He recorded the guitar solo. He took the guitar solo, just the, the guitar track, and had it put on a vinyl disc. You know, like a real vinyl. And then he had one of those amazing guys scratch the vinyl to the tempo of the music. I like think a, he did. I think he actually did it. No, no, he hired that guy Black to do it. Remember Black? No, Black was he. He was the guy that did um, the Under the Lash of Gravity stuff. That was ah. that was an amazing experience. That was that I knew nothing. Talented. I knew nothing of, of DJs and how they operated. And, and it was when we were about to do the session because we had already recorded all these tracks. And TJ said, "I met this met this dude named Black, and he wants. I want him to come and." I think Black was out with. Uh, LL Cool J, I think he was touring with or something. Yeah, that guy was really, nice. really talented, man. He he said uh, he said, listen, he said to TJ, bring in bring in your album. So I got this, you know, my old stuff. Bring in what you wanted me to use. So TJ grabbed Twenty One Twelve by Rush and Unleashed in the East by Judas Priest, and they were the two albums he took in there. And <laughs> the shit shit this guy did, I've never heard anything like it. It was, I went, this is an instrument. This is an instrument, and this guy oh, yeah. is a virtuoso. It's every like, bit as a legitimate instrument as any drum ever made. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Wow, so Black did that solo for him. I didn't know that. That's wow. what I, that's what I'm pretty sure that TJ told me. He scratched that solo, wow. and you just listen to it, and you're going, okay, I've never heard anything like this in my whole life. It's got to be some kind of pedal, but then you're sad when you find out. No, this cost me about you know a thousand dollars to do because I had to take, <laughs> <laughs> had to take it to Grumpins and have I had it to burn. take it to a master and have it mastered on the vinyl. <laughs> then I had to hire a professional DJ to scratch it, you know, and in in a session. So it's like a lot more expensive than a pedal. You know, but Mike Varney's uh, Mike Varney's listening to this, going, "God damn it, where did my budget go?" Yeah, right, right. 
was what a great idea for a solo, you know. It, like, it was, it was there were some really so fun cool. things that, that he came up with on that first Uncle Mo's record where we, we had a we had a song, it was called Cyborg, I think. And he had uh, he had uh, Dennis playing at half speed at the very front of the track. The tape was because it was all analog tape, that that whole all the basic tracks were on twenty-four track analog, and he had Dennis at half speed and then sped him up to full speed, and then, then the song kicked in, and we did the song. And then at the end of the song, he slowed Dennis back down to half speed, and I think Virgil came in and did a solo over the top of Dennis at half speed. It was one of the <laughs> wildest things. We had, a, we had a ball doing that stuff. It was so, that was John Ziegler, John Z brought over all these pedals, and we right. got to use all pedals. It was the first time I'd ever seen an echoplex in real life. It was a... Uh-huh. a Amazing, yeah. We had so many pedals, and you just bought that the uh, Fender Bandmaster, uh, right? The dumb, yeah. The band, yeah. I, I used that on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's that right. A, I loaned that to you and used it on a bunch of that record. Well, I had that amp. Like that was when I was going over to Bill Ash's, Billy Ash's uh, uh, store over in Santa Monica. He's an amazing luthier, and uh, and. Um, yeah, Billy said, uh, I've, got the, I've got this amp, because he, he was doing all Jackson Brown's guitars, all the work on his guitars, and of course Alexander works, I think he, does he live in a place that Jackson owns or something? Like, yeah, well, he used to. Yeah, there was a connection there, wasn't there? And uh, Jackson Brown's brother owned the property, but he left, and right. now he doesn't live there anymore. And he said, I've got this amazing amp, this bandmaster, you want to take it? And, and so I took it back to TJ's rehearsal space and I wasn't in the right headspace for that amp because I was, I was sort of in the headspace of getting all the sound from an amp, like a, the sustain and everything. I, I wasn't, I didn't have any pedals. I didn't have any good pedals or anything like that. But TJ's sitting there listening to it and he's going, this is a great amp. And he said, we've got to tell Scott about this thing. And, and, uh, and I think he turned you onto it and you ended up buying it. So right. Right. Yeah. That's a, that, it's a great amp, and I still have the. Well, I have a different version of it now. That's a long story. I don't want to get into that because <laughs> I don't want Dumble to be mad at me. But <laughs> whatever, you know. I, I still might have heard a snippet of that story. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, it's it's a great amp. You know, uh, Bruce has an amp that that Dumble just modified. Wow, how is it? Yeah, he sold his firstborn to get it. <laughs> <laughs> I say he can have all any kids I'll ever have. He can have them all. <laughs> <laughs> How's it sound? Well, I tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Yeah, no, <laughs> don't, don't want me to tell anybody how it sounds. <laughs> don't touch it. Don't even look. Yeah, at don't it. even touch it. Don't even look at it. <laughs> yeah, that's enough of that. So, so yeah, that was a great piece of gear. That. So Brett, you were at you were at MI for how long? Did you teach at MI for? wasn't so much teaching it was leading young people astray that was sort of the, <laughs> the job there it was i just started filling in there i think it was um i think barrett barrett taglarino had to go away and do a gig and and i ended up filling in for barrett for a, a semester right and um, and then i just started doing some odd open counsel uh, open counseling and and then i was sort of doing a few private lessons and and i just sort of accumulated enough for a few days like two days there and and uh, yeah, it was a, I, I love being an MI. I just felt 
I just felt like I didn't deserve to be there. That was the trouble. My self-esteem was so in the toilet that I just thought, well, I'm a fraud. I shouldn't be in this place teaching people. It's like, that's why I never went in the teacher's lounge. I'd, I'd sort of go in there and grab my stuff and run away. And people probably thought, what a fucking snob, you know? He doesn't <laughs> even come in here and talk to us. I thought I didn't deserve to be in the teacher's lounge. I'd, yeah. Maybe I thought I should have been unblocking the toilets or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great gig. I loved teaching there. It was a... A wonderful experience, you know, and and uh, I, actually one of the funniest things was um, I remember walking walking up the hall one day and Beth Marlis came up to me and she said, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, nothing. And she said, can you teach the country guitar class? Because Steve Trevato had left. He, he'd gone. And um, and I think they were kind of stuck. They hadn't replaced him yet with anybody. And I said, I, oh, whatever, I'll have a go. And, you know, so I think I... I think I went in there and I sort of winged it through the first thing and then I just kept going and doing Steve's curriculum until the term <laughs> finished. And there was one day we had to play, what the hell was it? Uh, the Claw or something like that. I think right. it was a Jerry Reed tune or something. And and I played it at about like the slowest tempo imaginable, you know. And I remember there was this great guy named Jonah. We became really good friends and he was Swedish and he said, uh, I think it's meant to be played a little faster than that. And I said, really, can you do it? And he came up and he played it at about a million miles an hour and it was just stunning, absolutely wiped the floor with me. <laughs> so, well, done, well done, Jonah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, you're all, always open to getting your ass kicked as a teacher there. It was, uh, but, it, but it was great because it, I, I really, I got to sort of know a few players who went on to become really Really big names, you know, like, like Rafael Moreira. You know, yeah, like Rafael. The, you know, you Rafael. sort of got a, you got a little bit of a snapshot of who was coming up and who was going to really be doing stuff. So, hmm. yeah, and of course, you know, just just the fact that uh, look, I'd, half the time I'd just be, I remember sitting in open count. Oh no, it was a private lesson one day. We had the door open and you were down the hall playing, Scott, and and I remember your sound was like wafting up the hallways and i was sort like of halfway through <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a fart <laughs> but a heavenly fart you know like one of, one of, okay. one of scarlett johansson's farts you know what i mean <laughs> and, and i remember i was halfway through halfway through talking about something and i kind of just drifted off and stopped and was listening and the, the student said he was like a heavy metal guy and he said uh that guy down any of the hall he's the end of the hall uh he's pretty good huh I said, "Oh yeah, he's pretty good. He's all right." And <laughs> I said, "You should you should go down there and hang with hang with him for a while." And uh, yeah, I'd try and send him down there as much as I could because uh, I think they they were either intimidated to go in there, or I just thought, "No, I don't need to learn anything from that. I don't want to play real book tunes." And yeah, and most of them are like that. They just it's a it's a different style, and they just don't really envision themselves ever doing that. So they just don't want to you know deal with yeah. That. If you if you could sort of lean them in that direction, and they think, all right, fair enough. If you said it, I'll go down there and have a listen. And yeah, it was amazing how many would come back and say, "Man, I went out and bought a real book." You know, and they they would uh, they just need to they just need to dip their toe in the pool, you know, and then they they get yeah, it. Yeah, it's not just and it's not just jazz. It's all different kinds of music because a lot of those guys would come to that school. They'd be really into heavy metal. And I remember the time that Tower Power came to play. Hello. going oh my god uh i guess you don't have it doesn't have to be metal for me to like it you know yeah exactly it's turning point, you need yeah. experiences that th those kind of people 
need experiences in their life to, to sort of like give them a big fucking mallet to their brain and, and, yeah. and to knock them out of their fucking little clique that they're in that there are other kinds of music out there than the, the, the fucking only thing in the world you listen to, you know, exactly. which is a- one of my pet peeves about musicians in general is they don't listen to enough variety of different music, you know, right. and, and there's just as many jazz guys and rock guys and country guys. And, you know, it's like they're, you know, they're just certain guys that, they only listen to one thing and the, and in in any category of music they're around you know they're those yeah. they're they're the really super close-minded cats that they just don't listen to anything except what they do you know which and is the weirdest the weirdest thing isn't it like i mean art, art is the art is the one thing we have in our lives where you can listen to and do almost anything you want and and it's qualified and it's legitimate. There's enough rules in society as it is where you can't drive that, that down that side of the road. You can't go in there until you're 18. And you, whereas in the in the world of art, why the why would you put up a bunch of fences and barriers when you can just? I think sometimes doing whatever you want scares the shit out of some people. Like Maybe, I, but it's not. You know, sometimes, especially in America, it's not just about the notes. It's about the 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 click that goes along yeah. with the notes. Like in other words, like all the heavy metal cats, they wear the same kind of clothes. <laughs> Their hair is kind of the same. They talk the same. You know what I mean? It's a click yeah. it's like a cult. So one of those guys, if, if, if one of their friends caught them listening to Beyonce, Oh my God, they'd get shit for it. Right. That's right. You know, and that's what I fucking hate. You know, because well, man, that has nothing to do with music. And it's it's like that's where I just remember that time when Tower of Power came to MI. <laughs> I saw so many guitar players. They were just like, What I don't think they'd ever heard anything so powerful. I don't think yeah. any heavy metal band in the world is as powerful as Tower of Power when they're really burning. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And holy shit, man, those guys were like, What the fuck is this? You know, that definitely changed some people's opinions about music that day. Yeah, so I think so, it was, like, you know, I think it was yeah. someone like Steve Vai talking about. I'm sure it was him. He was talking about the Sinatra album live at the Sands. Yeah, it was. It was him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he and he yeah. said he said man he said man that is more powerful than the most powerful metal you'll listen to. He said it's yeah. just it's just so it's so intense and and forceful when they kick in. It's uh, yeah. Well, Steve yeah. listens to ever. I've known him for a long time. He listens to all kinds of shit. He listens to classical music. He ins- sure, listens to yeah. Indian music. He listens to everything. Yeah, well, I remember Blackmore used to say that, that uh, classical music was more powerful than 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 heavy rock. He yeah, well, was- yeah. Blackmore was a big classical. You know, I can't remember who his favorite. And Ingve too. You know, Ingve loves what's that guy's name? I'm not a fan, but Ingve loves him. Um, who is that fucking guy? He drives me crazy. I can't listen to his tunes. They drive me absolutely out of my mind. I just want to kill myself when I hear him. Paganini. That's it. <laughs> oh, Paganini. <laughs> when I hear Paganini, I want to fucking shoot somebody. <laughs> but that's like but that's like Ingve's favorite classical composer. <laughs> Go figure. Fucking Ingve, man. He still a plays his ass off, you know. I mean, he's still a motherfucker player. He is, and you know, it's yeah, he's. Uh, you got to give it up for him for, oh, for just yeah. carving, a, carving a style 
and sticking with it and, and once again being completely completely and utterly recognizable within yeah. a minimum amount of notes. I mean he's definitely a badass. And you know, when you hear him play blues, he can even play blues. You know, the guys oh, are loving I think blues he's rock guitar player, you know. So but I'm I'm just I just always laugh because of all the classical composers out there, he picked Paganini. Paganini, <laughs> yeah. The guy makes me so mad when I hear him. <laughs> The turning, the turning point for me was like the late 70s when the police happened. And that's oh, when man. I, yeah, because uh, I was so into, I was so into the guitar as an, especially rock guitar, because that's what I wanted to play and it's what I wanted to learn. So I was hungry for information. And if it didn't have a guitar in the music playing some wild guitar solo, then why was I listening to it? And when the police happened and Andy Summers was so anti heavy rock guitar doing something completely different. And I just went, man, this band is so good and these songs are so good. This is a turning point. This is where I change and I just listen to music because I like it. And, and uh, that, was, that really was a, a pivotal moment where the whole world opened up to me. I didn't care what kind of music it was. If I liked it, I liked it and I was going to get into it. And that was, that was, a, it was a great great freedom in it as opposed to just being blinkered and saying, I only listen to heavy rock or whatever, you know. Yeah, Andy's a monster, man. Yeah, great, great songs too. Love it, love those guys. So, do you uh, do you do the Skype lessons? Do can people still get lessons off off your bread, or do you do that anymore? Or yeah, sure. If people want to do it, it's like the internet's so so shitty here in Australia. It's a uh, it's a little hard to do it justice. But I, I did do a lesson with a with a great fella in uh, in Greece and. Uh, also with a friend of Bruce's over in the states just recently. Yeah, and they work they work out fine. Like you can you can communicate to each other. You can't you can't play together, obviously. But uh, but yeah, sure. If anyone wants to hit me up, yeah, they know where to find me. I'm easy to find on the internet, so yep. I'm happy to do it. Cool. And hey, the Australian dollar sucks right now. So for <laughs> anyone in America, it's a, it's a bargain deal. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm you know, sending all my students to you. Can I get a cut? <laughs> Ex- absolutely. Yeah, we want a percentage. <laughs> you can. Hey, Brett, well, let's. I, I charge I, fifty for the lesson, and the internet costs a hundred. So your <laughs> cut. <is> perfect. <laughs> no, Brett, I was going to say something, and I for, I think I I think think Skype blew me out, but I was going to say same as you when you heard the police. Um, yeah. When I heard Weatherport and started listening to to music without guitar in it, and that kind of led me into listening to a lot of straight ahead jazz too, and the music didn't have guitar. For me, it was a lot of fun to listen to music, not sort of to try to be a better guitar player, but just listen to stuff that I just enjoy listening to because I just like to listen to it for no other reason. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And it kind of changes it when you're listening to something that isn't threatening because it's like you're listening to it and there's not some guitar player making you feel horrible because you can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God, that's so true. You know, so you're just listening to a band with no guitar and you're just digging it because they're there's nothing threatening in it. <laughs> <laughs> listening to a guitar player you really love, yeah. and you're like, oh, I really, well, I really like listening to this guy playing. Listening to jazz, there was very rarely a guitar player on any of my most uh, early important records, you know, and bands that I was into. 
Yeah, well, I can say the same thing when it comes to jazz. Like for rock, no, but for jazz, definitely. Like most of the jazz that I first started listening to and the jazz that I love the most doesn't have guitar in it. Yeah. You well, know? I remember, Bruce, so, you, you were saying that one of your biggest influences is Herbie Hancock, right? I think he said yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. Charlie Parker and Wynton Kelly and, you know, and Cannonball yeah. Adderley, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, me, me too. Ken Ball was like, he still is one of my huge, big heroes. I love that guy's playing. Amazing. Right. And Herbie too, of course, and Charlie Parker. But, you know, I got really into more um, the Weather Report and the modern, like, you know, Wayne Shorter's albums and the Zawinul stuff really hit me the hardest because I grew up in the era where, you know, like walking bass was never really my thing. It's not my, where my roots are. I mean, I learned how to enjoy straight ahead jazz and I do enjoy it, but it was, it's not where my roots are. My roots are more like in funk beats, you know, where the yeah. bass player does a little bit more than walk. He plays funky stuff. Right. So yeah, my, my roots in jazz were like, you know, the weather report, Herbie Hancock thrust and those records, because they were more about funk Mix some some kind of jazz mixed with funk or pop or whatever it's mixed with and even rock, but it's not straight ahead like the walking bass thing. I had to kind of learn how to enjoy that because I didn't grow up listening to it. Yeah, it's a it's a I never I never had anyone around me to influence me in that direction. It was a real challenge growing up around here because there wasn't that great musician up the road we could all go to to learn the secret chord you know like i remember the, <laughs> the, the 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 beatles the beatles thing where paul and john had to travel all the way across london to meet this guy who knew that other chord the diminished chord or something oh, right and, and yeah we were all struggling with the same stuff so anything i found was usually uh i would accidentally hear it uh, or see it on one of the two tv stations we had when i was growing up or I would uh, I would read about it in, in a magazine somewhere, and uh, when I sort of when I could finally get a copy of Guitar Player magazine, which was hard to get back in the seventies, um, that was when I'd I'd just see names. That's where I read about Larry Carlton, and I went, uh, I wonder uh -huh. who this guy is. And I, I went into a record store and found his album, and and uh, it was the only the only access I had to to finding out about anybody. It was really really tough. Man, it's too bad that you never got to play with Travis, Travis Carlton, because, you know, I had him in my band for a while. And, That's uh, right. He would always tell stories about his dad, and it was always hilarious to listen to his stories. Uh, you know, some funny stuff, man. Great stuff. Well, I had a, I had a band here with, um, with uh, three of my friends, Phil Tertio, Craig Newman, and Jerry Pantazis, and uh, we used to do gigs down in Melbourne a lot. We played there for quite a few years doing just – we had a, the band was called Damage. It was like a fusion band. We play a lot of Phil's tunes, and these guys are just incredible players. And when Larry toured here about, about three or four years ago, he used those three guys as his backing band. And, uh, and yeah, they said he was just brilliant. Great, great, great guy. Mm -hmm. He was really nice. I met him a couple times with Travis. And Larry would ask me, are you keeping this kid online on the road? And I said, I'm such a hard ass, you know, everything he does, I criticize and I just belittle him every chance I get. And Larry said, that's the way to, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> God, that's fantastic. That Travis, uh, 
Larry's son has like just elevated himself to the same level of musicianship that his dad has. That's a fantastic story, you know. You know what's so funny is is Travis. Um, Larry's Larry's a Christian, and Larry's he's not like a big cusser and a guy that like uses a lot of really foul language like his son Travis does. <laughs> so, <laughs> So Travis is around his dad and he's going, motherfucker, you know, motherfucking cocksucker, <laughs> motherfucker, right? And Larry's just giving him this look and he just raises his hands up and goes, where is the respect? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I remember oh, my bad. daughter, Angela, went to one of his, his birthday gig and he was up on the mic and he was going, well, the next tune is feature this fucking great bass. I mean, great drummer. The mother guy's a motherfucker. And Angela was only about like eight years old or maybe 10. And she was like, wow, dad, uncle Travis really cusses a lot. Doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> Kids get really good at self-editing. I hope you get a chance to play with them one day. Cause he's a blast. <laughs> Oh man, I bet. Well, he was on Vibe Station. Yeah, that's Travis. Yeah, yeah he was on Vibe Station. But you know what? If you ever come to LA, man, we're gonna get some kind of a jam together so you can so you can play with with good old Travis because he's fun. Oh, love it. That'd be that'd be brilliant. He is a blast, <laughs> and he's so, a fan of yours, by the way, too. Get out of here, really? Oh yeah, to totally. He knows you're playing, man, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's hard to comprehend anyone being a fan of me, but there I go again. <laughs> so, um, as this, I suppose, yeah, this would, this whole shutdown would hit places like the baked potato brutally. Yeah, it's just, it's closed. Yeah, it's closed. Let's say hi to everybody. Just say hi. 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 Uh, Hey, uh huh. Feels like an AA meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know about shit like that. Uh, right. There yeah. goes the little one. Yeah. Fantastic. Everything shut down. I, I don't know how some of these people and these businesses are going to climb back out of this. This is. Yeah. This is some bad shit we're going through and. It, it really is bad here, man. You don't. You wouldn't want to be here right now. It's bad. Well, you know, I've been, I, I've been, I've been uh, following the news, obviously, and just watching uh, what's happening in New York. It's, uh, it's frightening. Yeah, what's frightening is that there's a lot of people coming out now that are that are, um, you know, protesting, and they're coming out just sort of treating it like, um, if we get it, so what? And that's <laughs> not good, you know. That is not good. That's, uh, and, that's and you know the drag is we kind of got a president who's like, sort of you know like it, he's kind of like two faced. In one way, he's saying yeah we've got to you know social distance and we got to kind of cool out and close everything down. But at the same time, he's tweeting Eggie. to people yeah. to uh, to open up and come out and defy the governors of their state's orders and come out and protest. So in a way he's kind of creating a situation where he could be guilty of negligent homicide. Right. Man, by, so by, by, you know, by, by trying to influence people to actually come out and get sick. Yeah. I'm so tired so, of seeing like 
politicians on the TV. I want to hear from doctors. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, all scientists. I mean, I let's to, listen to the doctors. I think yeah. they know a little bit more about it. Yeah, oh, I, want to, I want to see. Christ. Yeah, I want to see someone with a degree in this stuff that can tell me what the hell's going on. So, yeah. but anyway, until then, we just we just do what we can, I guess. And well, everybody's going to be looking at Georgia for the next three weeks because they're <laughs> going to open their state on Monday. And wow, so everybody's going to come out. They're opening the whole state. Everything is going to be open. I just talked to somebody there. I was supposed to play there in uh, around the first of August, and I talked to the club owner and I said how do you feel about this? And she said, I am so embarrassed to live in the state of Georgia right now. I can't tell you. Wow. Wow. You know, because she said, obviously these people are the governor's nuts to open the state in the middle of a pandemic. What's he thinking? And, and I'll tell you something else. That's really weird too. Las Vegas. Oh yeah. Their is opening the strip and opening Vegas. And you know what she said? And these are her exact words. She said, well, we're just going to have to wait and see how many people die to see if this is going to work. <laughs> so oh that's what God. she said. <laughs> and, you know, there, there was a guy, uh, what is his name? Anderson, the guy with the white hair from yep. CNN. He was, he, was, he was interviewing her and he actually did a face palm. After she oh. said that, <laughs> he just put his head in his hands and just went, this lady's fucking crazy. <laughs> I don't think they get it, man. We're going to, we're going to, yeah, I think crazy shit is ahead of us. That's yeah, what's sad. Definitely the shit. It's going to have to hit the fan in a bad way. And a lot of people are going to have to die before they get, they, they take this thing seriously. We're, I mean, more people are going to. I mean, we're nearly at 50,000. How, how many people have to die before we start getting serious? I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, and, and the people in New York are furious because they're saying like, look, we have been living in our tiny little apartments and only going out and wearing masks and they're they're digging mask graves and you fucking snowflake pussies are complaining that you can't get a haircut. <laughs> Fuck. So you're coming so you're gonna come out and you've got your guns and you know, you know, the small dick guys always come out with their AK forty sevens like they're gonna shoot the virus. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're waving the Confederate flag like, not only do we want to be sick, but we want slaves to take care of us while we're sick. Do you know what? We need to re we need to re uh, market the flow bee. Do you remember that thing that that uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the, the, the thing that you clicked on the end of your vacuum, vacuum cleaner? Got a haircut. And it's I, I found the video on I think it came out in like the late 80s or something. And it was this connection you shoved on the end of your vacuum cleaner and it sucked your hair up into it. <laughs> and it had blades on the other end and gave you a buzz cut. But uh, the Flowbee needs to make a comeback. This is it. Got any addresses. Flowbee was adjustable. So you could have a buzz cut or you could have a, a mullet. That's right. Yeah, you, could. you could set it. It just made all your hairs equal length. That's right. Like, kind of like a spear cut. In theory. Yeah. Sort of like a Mr. Spock cut. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. It, it, it didn't really work too well, I guess, because it didn't catch on, you know. Okay. <laughs> but now's the time, baby. You could bring that now's back. Now's the time. Bobby. Well, yeah. You know what? I just, 
I just made a post on Facebook, just a short one, and, and it said basically like if you're going to go out in the streets and just protest and go out and shake hands with people and hug people and stuff, could you please per- burn sick on purpose on your forehead so the people at the <laughs> desk can tell you to fuck off? <laughs> I think it's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, that sounds fair to me. It's like what they did in the end of the movie, Glo- Inglorious Bastards, where they where, where Brad Pitt would cut a swastika into the Germans' heads. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like if you're going to take off that uniform, you know, and, and you're going to have to have this swastika, you know, cut into your head. It's like they need to cut sick on purpose into their heads. So then that way, when they show in up at the hospital, the hospital people can just say, Oh, this guy got sick on purpose. Fuck him. (laughs) Get him out of here. Yeah. Go to the back. (laughs) Yeah. Get to the back of the line. Close the doors behind them. Oh man. Whatever, man, we're just going to see what happens. I think the next two weeks in Georgia is going to tell a lot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I I didn't know that was happening. So that's sort of going to be a litmus test for, it's a living petri dish, is what it is. In fact, they do really open up because now Trump is back to, and and the guy Kemp is really, you know, you know, a, a Trump supporter. So Trump kind of backed it back. So he may change his mind. They still got till Monday to, you know, shut it down a little bit. Right. So you they know? might renege on that. He, he, yeah, I'm thinking there's a real good chance he'll uh, hold back on. it. That, that what I didn't get that Bruce because my Skype he, went out. The governor can still rescind that order, you know, and I mean, it take make changes mind. And right. Donald Trump, you know, had came out and said he didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you yeah. know, those guys are friends. You know, who knows? I think the guy thought that you know it was a good idea, and you know, may, he may change his mind. In which case, we'll we won't know that that experiment. Yeah. You know? Right. You, you know what's the one of the funniest things is just two weeks ago, Brett, that same governor, the governor of Georgia, just two weeks ago, he said, I just found out that people could get the virus and not have symptoms. He just found out <laughs> oh, just two weeks ago. <laughs> he didn't know that. Well, he says he didn't know that until two weeks ago. Oh, my God. And, and this guy's the governor of the state. I'm going like, how do you get to be a governor and be that dumb? I don't get it, but who knows, man? I really don't know. It's a, uh, it's. We seem to be coping with it pretty well here. Like uh, people seem to be doing the right thing. All the people I know are anyway. Yeah, here too in California, we seem to be like okay, you know, because everybody's practicing the social distancing. I think there was one, there was one protest in Huntington Beach. Yeah, yeah. That didn't last very long, and it wasn't that many people. Out protesting, right. nothing like that they're doing in uh, in uh, Michigan. That was a big, big, big protest with lots of people. Um, yeah, so I saw some of that. That was pretty full on. Yeah, but California seems to be like kind of like we're taking this shit seriously. We're staying home, man. We don't want to die. Yeah, what you know? a concept! Yeah. What a well, concept! <laughs> yeah, I'm sort yeah. of using so the. Thing. Is, I think my wife is going to end up killing me anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what difference does it make? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of going by I'd rather be poor than dead. That's kind of my motto right now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to try and uh, get more of an online presence happening, Scott, or anything like that? Or I'm, you doing a few, I'm doing just like a few lessons on Zoom. Not that many. But you know what I'm going to do, actually? Um, um, 
I know this, this sh I shouldn't really, I'll try to make this really short, but I'm going to start uh, writing again and putting out a tune at a time instead of doing okay. albums. There you go. Mm -hmm. So that's my new thing. I'm going to write a tune, um, record it in the studio with the guys, put it out and just do it one tune at a time. Because the way I figure it is if I have to wait another five years or four years with this economy to put out an album and then I have to go into debt and borrow another $20,000 to do a record. Um, man, I, I'm sort of thinking like in my mind, do I really want to be writing a tune and thinking in my head that nobody's going to hear this tune for four years? Yeah. You know? Cause you, by the time you get to the last tune, the, uh, the first one's stale and you're singing. Yeah, and I'd sort of rather write a tune and think, Hey, maybe people are going to hear this in a couple of months. Well, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's just, amazing. Yeah, just on, the promotional thing. I mean, nowadays you, you work for years on a record, you put it out, it, it's like hot on, you, you announce it on Facebook and 20 seconds later, 30 minutes later, no one, you know, it's it's over. You right. know, exactly. You know, you it's got a shelf life of about six months. A couple months. Then you have 10 done, then you put them out as a CD. You've got like actually 11 promotional yeah, it's versus it keeps your name in the press better right. and um, it, it keeps you more visible. And like, that's exactly true. When you have enough tunes, um, when you have enough tunes to put it on a CD, you burn some CDs and sell them at your gigs, you know? So uh, it seems to be the, the way to do it, especially in this economy right now. That's well, you I know, the, um, the, the major, the major labels apparently are moving to, streaming almost completely i think they're almost doing away with cds mm -hmm. totally from from what i heard so yeah it sort of puts it in a position where yeah just a song song per song basis almost is yeah. the model they're going to go for anyway you can do that you know i mean i'm still selling cds on cd baby you know in pretty much the same way that i was selling cds for the last record that i did but what i notice is that i'm not making as as, as much money as i did on the last record because i'm not touring as much and not selling as many cds on the road and that's where oh. the real money is in selling cds because it's more of a souvenir than anything else of the show absolutely yeah. you know people just like to carry away something from the show and they're you know it's only like 15 bucks so they just say oh yeah let's go buy a cd and talk to yeah, Scott, and can, get an autograph, and sign hang. It. Yeah, exactly. You no, know, it's just like a little hang after the show. So, you know, that's the that's that's the 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 good part about printing uh, actual CDs. But I I think what I was thinking also is like if you do a tune at a time, you can sell the MP3 version on Amazon and iTunes, and you can there's this there's this site I forgot the name of it where they sell the the actual 96k WAV file. And it's yeah. just like sort of like CD baby for wave files, right? right? So if somebody wants to buy the tune in its real form, like with the best sound quality, they can go to this site and maybe I'll sell that for two bucks. And, and you know, the, like you said, the for two bucks, like you said, the financial outlay to do one song is so much less than a whole album. So it probably makes more sense financially to do it that way too. Yeah, you save a lot less money. I mean, save more money because, for one thing, you're not printing up a shitload of CDs, which costs like you know two or three grand right there. And, right, right. It depends yeah. on your studio scene. I mean, going into the studio ten times versus going in once and recording the whole thing. That you know, per tune cost is probably cheaper if you do the whole date at once. You know. 
Probably, but the way I was thinking about doing it is not actually going into the studio where we would do an album in, but more like, say, like a studio like Kinsey's, where he's ready to record drums at any time. He's got it. He's ready to go. Or like Alan's studio, where he's got his kit set up and ready to record drums. So not going into like a more expensive studio, but going into like one of my friend's studios to record. Right, but I mean, obviously, you're you're still talking about it on a, at a day when we can all play in the same room, right? Yeah, or you know, you do the other thing: you do all your guitar tracks and send the guitar tracks to the bass player to record the bass tracks and send it to the drums to play drums over yeah. your your shit. You know, which you could do that too. So there's lots of options. Yeah. You know, so depending on what kind of tune it is, like obviously, if it's more of a jazzy tune, you want to try to be all together in the same room. But if it's more of a funky or rock kind of tune, you can probably do it with everybody playing tracks in different locations. So, you know, just depends on the kind of music, I suppose. Yeah. I haven't given that much thought because I, I might just do a an opera album this time. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to hear that. <laughs> I've really been practicing on my opera voice. Do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do Phantom of the Bopra. Yeah. <laughs> when, you know, when I, when I do opera, I put the mic up to my butt. That's my style of opera. Uh, that's what you said your last gig sounded like. Yeah, it did. <laughs> oh, God. Everything's done, re- everything's done remotely now. Yeah, except for the butt, except for farting. I do that all in house. <laughs> That's in house. <laughs> you don't farm that out to Indonesia. No, no, I don't outsource farting. I do that. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to outsource your farts out to Indonesia, man. No, like, they, and my practice. No. Oh, that's been great, man. <laughs> I got this, these two guys in India that practice for me. Man, it's great, man. So <laughs> they much do the done. different rhythms and stuff with your. Oh, I was getting so much done, man. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, one 